Oh, Father, we do ask that you would apply this word that you gave the Apostle James to our hearts even now. Let us not be but hearers of your word, but doers as well. Father, give us insight into your word. Open our minds and open our hearts that we would see wonderful things in your word. And above all the things that we would see, Lord, disclose to our hearts that which is invisible apart from your grace. The goodness of Jesus, your Son, our Savior. Cause us to esteem him, to love him, and to know him more. And we ask this for his sake. Amen. Well, friends, if you've been with us, then you know that we're studying through the book of First Peter. But if you're a visitor today, I encourage you to follow along with us. We're looking at the book of First Peter. We're looking at chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. First Peter, chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Last week... In chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, we saw that spiritual maturity is marked by a growing love for others, by a longing for God's word, and by delight in God's goodness or in his gospel. In this passage, Peter gives us another picture of God's intended outcome for spiritual growth. What will it look like when someone is growing spiritually. In fact, what is God's plan for somebody who tastes of his kindness and longs for his word? What does that look like? He illustrates this by comparing Christ to the cornerstone of a majestic building, specifically a temple, a temple with Christ at its very heart and center. And then he compares believers' lives to living stones that are being carefully crafted and purposefully placed each alongside another to enjoy, to embody, and to reveal God's glory and gospel to themselves and others. But as you can pretty quickly tell, God's purpose for us in Christ swiftly exceeds the capacity of any one metaphor. And that's true across Scripture, and it's certainly true here God means for us to embody and to reflect Christ in all of life, not just as his temple, but as his priests, even as his sacrifices. So God means for us, and this is our main idea today, if you get nothing else from the sermon, hear this, this is the main idea, we are to come to Christ with all we are for all of life. We are to come to Christ with all we are for all of life. Indeed, being in Christ and coming to Christ is Peter's core theological concern in this passage. For it is in Christ that we become his temple, in Christ that we become his priests, in Christ that our life becomes an acceptable sacrifice to God, in Christ that we share in his honor. It is in Christ that we share in his life In short, God means to so bind a believer into Christ that we become a living reflection of his glorious grace. 
To understand the passage, then, we need to do a few things. First, we need to recognize the significance of Christ as the living cornerstone of God's salvation. We need to understand who Jesus is as relates to God's salvation. Then, secondly, we need to locate ourselves with respect to him. And then we need to understand what it means to come to him continually for life. And then we need to ask what happens to us as a result of coming to Christ or rejecting Christ. So in essence, we're just going to be walking through this passage blow by blow. So our first big idea for today is that Christ is the cornerstone of God's salvation. Christ is the cornerstone of God's salvation. So you'll find this in verse 4. In verse 4, the apostle says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So in verse 4, Peter is giving us three keys to help us understand the critical role that Jesus plays in God's plan of redemption. First is that Jesus is a living stone. The second is that he was rejected by men. Thirdly, then you can see, but God chose him and causes us to see him as precious. In God's eyes, he is chosen and precious. Peter uses these words, that he's living, that he's rejected, chosen, and precious. He uses these words because of their close association with three Old Testament passages that are quoted later in this passage. He quotes Isaiah 28.16, he quotes Psalm 118.22, and he quotes Isaiah 8.14. Each of these texts, Peter is using to reinforce the idea that Jesus is God's promised Messiah. That's the main idea of each of those texts, is so you see that Jesus is God's promised Messiah, that he is the cornerstone in God's plan for salvation, and that our place in God's plan of redemption is a reflection of our relationship to Christ. So the main point of those passages is Christ is the key, the cornerstone in God's plan for salvation, and our position in God's plan depends entirely on our relationship to Christ. So let's think about each of these words. The first is cornerstone. Leo's to see stone in verse 4, but he, he expands it to being cornerstone. A cornerstone is key to a building's integrity. A cornerstone must be of sufficient quality that it can bear the weight of the entire structure that's built upon it, And it must be laid with such precision as to be perfectly plumb and perfectly square. Everything that a builder goes to do is done with respect to that first stone. If the stone is square, the building will be square. If the stone is plumb, the building will be plumb. Indeed, consequently, especially in the ancient world, a building's integrity, its structural integrity, depended entirely on its relationship to that one stone. So in calling Christ God's precious and chosen cornerstone, Peter means that Christ is the essential connection between us as sinners and God's grace. And that he becomes the pattern for our spiritual maturity. So that's the cornerstone. The next word is rejected. That he was rejected by men refers to his execution. 
And it implies that those who follow Christ can expect to be rejected as well. The third term that we see is that he's chosen and precious. And that refers to Christ's glorious vindication when God raised him from the dead. And this is why Peter calls him a living stone. And it's also why those who come to trust in him in faith can be considered like living stones, that we are living stones as well. And that's because the same power that raised Jesus now dwells in those who trust in him. So now in each of these texts that Peter cites is loaded with profound implications. And much to my own sorrow, but probably to your gratitude, we don't have the time to treat each of these passages that Peter quotes in detail and still give weight to the main idea of this passage. So my, my plan is that when we're done with 1 Peter, we, will, we might come back and do a brief series explaining how the New Testament uses these Old Testament passages to point to Christ, because each one of them deserves its own sermon. For now, the point in identifying Jesus with these prophecies is to demonstrate that Jesus is the cornerstone of salvation and that our relationship to him is crucial. That's the point that these texts are serving. In other words, you can't come to God without coming to Christ. And you can't come to God without coming through Christ, depending on Christ, with all that you are for all of life. So that was our first big idea. Christ is the cornerstone of God's salvation. The second, though, is that in Christ, Christians are united to God's redemption. You can see that in another aspect of verse 4. It says, as you come to him, A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now, the phrase that's rendered in the ESV, as you come to him, might be better translated, as you are coming to him. It's a present progressive passive, if that helps you. This means that coming to Christ for life occupies our whole life. It is not something that we do once in a very profound moment, although for some of us we will remember the first moment that we did indeed come to Christ and trust him with our life. What Peter is emphasizing is that coming to Christ is not a one and done matter. It's something we do continually. It's something we do our whole life. We do it daily. We do it week after week. We do it year after year. And it's in that process of coming to Christ in faith that God uses to shape and to mold us into the image of Christ. To come to Christ, then, means to trust Christ. To come to Christ means to trust in Christ. You can see that in verse 7. You can see I've highlighted it there. The honor, he says, is for you who believe. So that modifies coming to Christ. Those that come to Christ are those that believe in Christ. But he says, but for those who do not believe, and then he explains what will happen. We'll get to that later. So the distinction is between coming to Christ and not coming to Christ, which is to believe in Christ or not believe in Christ. 
When we ask what does it mean to believe in Christ, though, when we, when we say what does it mean to trust in Christ, well, it looks at, at least three ways. First, it means to trust Christ to carry the weight of your sin. So you remember I said that the cornerstone needs to be of sufficient quality that it can bear the weight of the whole building. Just as the cornerstone must bear the weight of the whole building, to come to Christ means to trust him to carry the weight of your sin. Now first, friends, if, you, if you're not a Christian or if you're just visiting or even if you've been in the church your whole entire life, you need to know that you are a sinner and that you need Christ. Trusting in Christ to carry your sin is not just an option. It's not just a way that some people navigate through life. It's what everyone needs. Every last one of us is a sinner, and we desperately need Christ to carry the weight of our sin. And it's not as though Christ only carries part of the weight of our sin, and we carry some other part. Like, we couldn't carry, you know, some amount of it. We offloaded that onto Christ, and he took that, and we too do this. No. Christ must carry all of it. All of the weight of the building must fall on Christ. Now, some folks mistakenly imagine that Christians are people who believe that they have become morally perfect, or that they are morally perfect, or that they even present themselves as being morally perfect, but that's not true. No, we're people who trust and rely on the moral perfection of Jesus Christ. The other element here is that you need to recognize that you will not be free to give your life to Christ or live your life for God until and unless you let Jesus carry away your sin. You're not going to be able to obey Christ until you trust Christ to carry your sin. You will be constantly impeded by the weight. It will tie you up. You will not be able to follow him. This image, or actually before I even get to that, friends, especially to my Christian brothers and sisters, this is something that Satan uses to hamstring believers all the time. As he tries to convince you either to take on some portion of your guilt or some portion of your wrongdoing and to bear it yourself and to feel it for yourself. When that is to go on Christ... And by that, he hamstrings Christians from following in the Lord. This picture of Christ carrying the weight of sin or sin being heavy is picked up in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5, where the prophet says, Surely he, and he's speaking about the Messiah, says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. There is a complete and total exchange of our guilt for his righteousness. And that's the foundation of the good news. But the second aspect of trusting Christ means to trust Christ to make you right before God. So we trust Christ to carry our sin, but that doesn't bring us into God's favor unless Christ also gives us his righteousness. So we trust Christ to make us right before God. The rightness of a building depended ultimately on its cornerstone. 
If the cornerstone was plumb and you were built in alignment with that, you also will be plumb. Christians don't look to ourselves for our right standing with God. The inclination can be to say, I came to Christ and he carried away my sin, but from that point onward, it's on me. Now I have to live a life that is pleasing to God perfectly and fully and completely. But that's not the picture of the gospel. The picture of the gospel is Christ takes away all of our sin and Christ gives to us all of his righteousness. We have right standing in God through Christ. Our peace, our joy, our confidence as Christians does not come ultimately from our performance. It comes from our relationship to Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, coming to Christ with all we are for all of life does not mean submitting to a new kind of legalism. It means resting and rejoicing in God's grace. It means knowing that Christ's righteousness is enough for you. The third aspect of trusting in Christ means to trust him for how to love and obey God. And this is, in technical terms, what Christians call sanctification or being made holy. A builder knows where and how to place a stone or indeed any element of the building by measuring it with reference to the cornerstone. Everything in the building pertains and references that particular point. Someone who comes to Christ necessarily then must be willing to align themselves with him, with his measurements, with his rightness. You can't come to the building of Christ and say, I have a notion about how I think I should be built into this building. It doesn't look like Christ, but that's okay because I'm accepted in Christ. No, you, you're accepted in Christ. You are in Christ's building so long as you are obedient to Christ and standing with reference to him. So someone who comes to Christ must be willing to submit to Christ's teaching. He must be willing to submit to his pattern of life. Now, this obviously isn't a matter of immediate or instantaneous perfection. But over the course of our lives, we are being shaped, crafted, molded, and placed by God in accordance to Christ. Friends, some, some of my friends who, who don't know Christ or don't believe in Christ have often come to Scripture and been surprised that it would challenge them. And friends, I, I would recommend to you as a Christian or as a non-Christian, just assume that this book is going to push back on you somewhere. Somewhere in your life, you're going to come across a passage that pushes back on something you intuitively think is right. And it's, 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 an, it's a strange feeling. It's like, I'll go and I'll go to hang a painting in my house. And I'll hang the nail and I'll put the painting up and I will look and I will think, I'm pretty sure that that's plum or I'm pretty sure that that's square. It looks pretty good to me until you put a level on it, at which point you realize that, no, my intuitive sense of what is upright what is level, is not always accurate. We need some kind of objective instrument to clarify our senses. That's what Christ does through his word. So the implication of these three statements, these three ways of coming to Christ, 
The clear question is, are you coming to Christ? Do you trust Christ to carry your sin? Do you trust Christ to make you right with God? Is Christ your Savior and is Christ your Lord? See, woven into Peter's illustration is the assumption that our life as Christians depends on his life. That nothing we do, whether as a temple, as a sacrifice, or a priest, that nothing we do could ever add to the sufficiency of Christ or could take away from the necessity of Christ's life and death. That nothing we do as his servants could ever add to the sufficiency of Christ, that Christ has done all that is necessary, nor could it ever take away from the necessity of Christ, that we need Christ. Our being built as God's temple and becoming priests and offering ourselves as sacrifices stands or falls on whether we come to God in Christ, whether we receive Christ as our temple, our priest, our sacrifice, because it is as we come to him and through him, God's living stone, that we ourselves are built up. So the third major idea is that in Christ, Christians become God's temple, his priests and sacrifices. And you can see this in verse five, which is really the heart of this section, where he says, you yourselves like living stones, this is as you are coming to him, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As I said, this is, I think, the heart of the passage. God is building his true temple on the life and death of Jesus Christ. How's he doing it? Using, shaping, placing individual believers like living stones so that their whole life becomes a living sacrifice to the praise of his glory and grace. All of your life in Christ is being used by Christ to glorify Christ. That's why you exist. You exist to know, enjoy, and glorify Christ. Everything, no matter how hard or how wonderful, is being used by Christ for his glory. Now, friends, we as Americans, we love to individualize just about everything. And while there is an individual aspect to each of the illustrations where we're talking about how I am becoming the temple of Christ or how I am a priest in the household of Christ or how I am a sacrifice. That's not Peter's emphasis in this passage. In this passage, Peter is emphasizing the communal sense. We, the church, are God's temple priests and sacrifices, how we all gathered together now, this cuts against our individualistic society pretty aggressively, and it's worth reflecting on. Because, friends, if you expect your Christian faith to thrive or even ultimately survive without regularly gathering, depending on, and living among the body of Christ, the church of God, you are mistaken. 
And secondly, if you expect that you can keep your faith to yourself and only just build yourself up in your holy faith, or that your faith is strictly for you so that you can navigate your life in a way that is just better for you, you are also sorely mistaken. God's grace is for you, but it is not ultimately about you. God's grace is for you, but it is not ultimately about you. So let's think about this in communal terms. The first is that in Christ, the church becomes God's temple. What was the temple? The temple was the meeting place between God and man. So while God is omnipresent, while God is everywhere, yet we understand from Scripture that God reveals himself in a special way to his people in the temple. You can see this lived out when Solomon dedicates the temple in 2 Chronicles 7 one and following. It says, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And this idea, which you th- when you're reading that passage, you think, it can't get better than this, Right? Like, this is the most amazing display of God's presence on the earth. No, no. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we see that the idea climaxes in Christ. The word, he says, became flesh and dwelt, and that word is literally he tabernacled or he templed among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when Peter says that we're being built up as a spiritual house, to say that we are being built up as a spiritual house means we are God's dwelling place. Friends, right now, when the church ecclesias, when we gather, when we assemble, God's spirit is present among us. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, it often gets quoted uh, in English, the word you can mean either you individually or can mean you, everyone, you all. Sometimes we mistake that in the text. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16, the you is plural. Do you all not know that you all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? This idea has a host of implications. We'll just do a few. That we are God's temple means that when the church assembles, God is present in a special way. Friends, the Spirit of the Lord is here with us right now. Matthew 18, verse 20, Jesus says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And this means that we should come expecting to meet with the living God. We should come to the assembled gathering of God's saints, eager to be renewed in the fellowship of God's Spirit. It means we should be wary of forsaking the gathering of God's people. Just as we would be concerned if one of our children stopped coming to dinner, or if one of our players on our team just stopped showing up to games, we'd we'd be really concerned, right? Right? 
We should be concerned and wary of forsaking the assembly of God's people. Secondly, as the temple was the meeting place between God and man, so the church is where sinners meet with the holy God. It's it's not as though God is not in certain places and he is in others. And in that sense, you may remember an encyclical that went out from the, the Catholic Pope some years ago, saying about how anyone you know, could go anywhere outside of the church and they could find God anywhere. And in a, in a sense, I agree with him. But as far as scripture is concerned, God is present in the gathering of his people and in the preaching of his word. That's where sinners encounter the living God. We should, we should live and worship in such a way that when strangers come among us, that they are filled with a sense of both joy and awe at the presence of God. It should feel a little weird for someone who does not know or claim the name of Christ to come and gather amongst those who do know and claim the name of Christ. It should feel a little odd. And also, we should remember that as we are members of God's temple means that our life together should be a foretaste of God's coming kingdom. Friends, life among God's people should be a joyful and a reverential picture of what it is like when God rules among his people. Obviously, it won't be perfect. Obviously, we're not going to exactly express what it's like when God rules over his people. That's coming when Jesus returns. May it happen swiftly. But as we wait for that coming day, Someone, at least from the outside, or even we on the inside, should be able to look at the relationships that we have and the way that we relate to others and see and taste what's it like when God rules over a people. When God rules over a people, they're they're sacrificial. When God rules over a people, they extend hospitality. When God rules over a people, they, remember last week, they put away all malice. They put away deceit. They put away hypocrisy. These people don't slander each other. It is It's different. When God rules over a people, it's wonderful. So the second way that Peter says that we're being placed into God's purpose of salvation is that in Christ, the church becomes God's priests. And the goal of being built up as a spiritual house, he says, is to be a holy priesthood. So again, while there are individual aspects to this reality, we could talk about the priesthood of all believers. That would be helpful All believers have access to God through the intercession of Jesus Christ. I don't have, as a pastor, a red telephone to Jesus that somehow gives me a step up over any other believer in Christ. An elder in the church has been set aside for a particular task in God's house. They have special tasks and a a degree of authority that comes with it. But they are not any more a priest than any one of you who lives and comes to Christ by faith. Everyone in Christ has direct access to God through Jesus Christ. But that's not primarily Peter's emphasis here. Peter's emphasis here is on the church as a whole. In the Old Testament, a priest was to dedicate his life to knowing, loving, and serving God by learning and teaching his word to others and by offering sacrifices. If you're in Sunday school, Nathan did a great job of explaining this aspect Christians are to embody this kind of dedication. That's why we, the main idea is to come to Christ with all that we are for all of life. This does not mean that Christians may not take secular work. 
As we know from Colossians 3.24, the apostle says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Friends, if you're a chemist, you are serving the Lord Christ. If you collect garbage, you are serving the Lord Christ. If you change diapers, you are serving the Lord Christ. If you are making breakfast or cleaning up dishes, you are serving the Lord Christ. If you write legal briefs, you are serving the Lord Christ. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God and for Christ. So, it doesn't mean that we have become the priests in God's household, that we all need to become missionaries, we all need to become pastors, that we all need to somehow fit into very specific strains of obedience. Again, another aspect of the Old Testament is that priests received no inheritance in the land of God's promise. So in Numbers verses, uh, chapter 18, verse 20, the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. And friends, this, this distinguishes Christians from the rest of society. Because our hope is in God's reward. Our trust is in God's provision. Priests in the Old Testament were, in a sense, sojourners among the people of Israel. They were, in a sense, exiled even from their own people. They had no land and they depended entirely on the well-being of, of, the, of the offerings that were brought to the house of God. They, they had for their eternal hope, God. They had a hope for an inheritance, God. Their, their wealth was God. And Peter just picks that up and airlifts it and says, that's you. Your hope is not in accumulating wealth and treasure in this world. Your hope is not in gathering weight and, and fame and position and wealth and power here. Your hope is the Lord. Your inheritance is the Lord. You are a sojourner and an exile. No matter what country you live in, no matter where you are from, no matter what race you are, you've been plucked out of that, planted in the kingdom of Christ, and Christ is your reward. This is what distinguishes us from the rest of society. It means that our occupation, while it is not unimportant, it is merely secondary. The whole aim of our life is to serve God with all our heart for all of life. And so that brings us to the church has become God's priest. What does it mean that the church is God's priests? Well, there should be a real, not artificial, distinction between the life of a believer and an unbeliever. It should go beyond the talismans we wear or the marks we put on our cars. There needs to be a real distinction between the life of a believer and an unbeliever. But that doesn't mean that we need to come up with ways of making ourselves stick out like a sore thumb. Friends, I assure you, if you follow Christ in humility and meekness and kindness, you will stick out like a sore thumb in any culture on this planet. Secondly, it means the priest considers every aspect of his life to be at God's disposal. And ultimately, it's for God's glory. That means that your marriage is at God's disposal. That means that your family is an instrument to serve and glorify God. That means that your job is given you to serve God and to magnify him in the world. That means that your hobbies are given you so that you can magnify God and glorify him. Every aspect of your life as a priest is dedicated to God. You owe it to him. It's his to begin with. He can give it. He can take it. It's his. 
So the question becomes, how can I, by what I do and how I do it, serve God with all my being for all of life? If you're going off to college or if you're, as you're going through high school and you're thinking about, well, what am I going to do in this world? The world is going to tell you, what do you want to do in this world? And that's not an unimportant question. It's not even necessarily an unhelpful question. That can really be helpful. But there's a greater question. And the question is, what should I pursue doing so as to glorify God with the talents, gifts, and capacities he's given me? How could I serve God with my life most meaningfully in the circumstances that God's placed me in? The third aspect is that a priest goes between God and sinners. This means that the church, by proclaiming the gospel, is one of God's chief means of revealing himself to the world. Our children learn primarily what God is like by looking at their parents. The world learns primarily what God is like by looking at the church. So we're his temple. It's become his sacrifices. Why? As we become priests, why? So that we become his sacrifice. In Christ, we become living sacrifices, pleasing to God. The chief function of the priests in the Old Testament was to offer sacrifice. Now, friends, we know that by dying on the cross, Jesus put away all perpetual ritual sacrifices. We do not make ritual sacrifices anymore that make us have right standing before us and God. Hebrews 10 verse 14 says, by a single offering, he that is Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Instead, the church offers a different but still a constant kind of sacrifice. And Hebrews uses this language. Chapter 13 and verses 15 and 16, the author says, through him, Christ, then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise. God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So God's great purpose for his church is to be so dedicated to him and so filled with his praise, to know his word and love his gospel so much and so well that the whole world is continually filled with an echo of his praise. You could think of this kind of like the, uh, the salt of the earth analogy that Jesus uses. That's we're scattered throughout the earth to be the thing that sustains and preserves life by continually proclaiming the gospel with our lives and with our words everywhere we go. By what we do, by what we say, we testify to the good work of God. You can see that in this passage. If you just look with your eyes down to verse 9, Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And if that wasn't enough, he says it in verse 12. And he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The most obvious evidence of Christ's grace in our life is a heart that loves the kindness of God and a life that overflows, however imperfectly, in word and in deed, with the goodness of God and the truth of his gospel. 
What do you have then to give to the work of the Lord? You have your time, you have your talent, and you have your treasure. We live in a culture that will insist that these things are for us. We're to use our time for us, that our talents are for our enjoyment, that our treasures are to be enjoyed after many years of hard work. But God gives those things to us to enjoy so that we might glorify him. And when we gather, we are reminding one another and we're reminding the world that all we are for all of life belongs to God. Because ultimately God's purpose in redeeming his church is to magnify and reveal his own glory. What this makes plain is our fourth big idea. Without Christ, we are destined for destruction but in Christ for honor. You can see this in verses 7 and 8. It says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So finally, since Christ is the cornerstone of God's salvation, if it is only in Christ that you are connected to God's grace, it's only through Christ that you can come to God, if you reject Christ, that will result in your ultimate destruction. We will stumble against him. In this case, friends, a stumbling block is not something that you just trip over. In this context, it's not something that just happened to get in your way, like trying to climb a set of uneven stairs and tripping on one of those steps that just wasn't placed quite right. No, it's because it was placed there deliberately. When I was a younger man, I I thought that I would like to enter a clandestine service and in the process of seeking to discover whether or not that would be an appropriate fit, I discovered that there would be a series of oaths that I would have to take. And one of those oaths was reprehensible to my conscience. Uh, I'm not saying that's reprehensible to all consciences. There are a lot of people who can take those oaths and, and hold them faithfully and well in the service of God and country. But for me, one of those oaths was a stumbling block. I couldn't say it with a clean conscience. It, it was a problem for me. I couldn't do it. That is what Christ is like to everyone who rejects him. It's not that they've stumbled on him on their way to something else. It's that they come in contact with him and he is offensive to them. He is a problem. They can't get past him. The necessity of Christ is offensive to the unbeliever. The idea that I need Christ to be saved, that I can't be saved without Christ is offensive. The idea that Christ is enough, that nothing I bring will please God, nothing at all, that I have no resources with which to merit God's favor, that is offensive to the unbeliever. And the idea that Christ will be Lord of my life, that he owns every single penny I make, that he owns my talents, he owns my time, he owns my body, he owns my abilities, he can give me sight, he can take it away, he can give me speech, he can take it away, he owns everything about me, he is my Lord as much as my Savior, that idea is offensive to an unbeliever. You come and you say, no, I want some kind of merit. I want some kind of control. I will have something. My friend, the way to Christ is to say, I have nothing but Christ. 
all I have is Christ. Peter's chief concern here, though, is not really the unbeliever. It's actually to encourage believers that if they suffer rejection in this life, they will ultimately be honored by God. That's why he says in verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe. And by honor, Peter means vindication. He means specifically resurrection, praise God. He uses the same word in verse 6 when he quotes Isaiah 28. When he says, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen. And the word precious there would be better rendered honored. It's the literal word honored. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And now you see that apposition. The honor that God showed Christ was by raising him from the dead and by glorifying him with himself. And he extends that same promise to anyone and everyone who comes in faith to Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So Peter says this for at least two reasons. One, to encourage believers that our sacrifices for Christ are not without value and they're not without reward. The idea that everything that I am is owed to Christ can be intimidating if you don't understand that Christ is a loving and good master and that he rewards the sacrifices that you make. And secondly, he wants to show that sinful opposition to Christ and the kind of resistance that we will experience as his followers is not outside God's sovereign control. In verse 8, the second half, he says, they stumble, why? Because they disobey the word. Why? As they were destined to do. Now, Scripture affirms God's sovereignty in all of matters, and at the same time, it never excludes man's moral accountability. God is ultimately sovereign over the lives and decisions of individual men. And men are morally responsible for how they respond to Christ. So how you see Christ and how you respond to Christ has everything to do with finding your purpose in life. Only in Christ can we know God for ourselves, experience his power, and share his grace with others. Well, let's apply and conclude. Coming to Jesus with all we are for all of life is essential for a life that's pleasing to God. Friends, it might be good. It might be right. It might even be wise to ask yourself as you go to lunch, how is God using you as a living stone in his house? Or to ask, how can I be dedicated to his service or what might he be asking me to offer up in my life as a sacrifice to his glory? But I want us to leave with a more fundamental question and remind us with a glorious truth. And the question is, are you in Christ? Are you trusting in Christ to carry the weight of your sin? to make you righteous before God, to fill you with his spirit, to change you for his glory. Friends, it's only in Christ that our obedience becomes freedom and not a crushing burden. It's only in Christ that we're free to give our lives, to spend and be spent for the gospel. The best way to know whether you're in Christ is not to examine your perfection, nor even necessarily always to look at your new obedience, although that is helpful, It's to look deeper. It's to look for new desires. And the most telling mark of a soul that is in Christ, a soul that has tasted of God's kindness, is a soul that longs for his word 
and a soul that longs for Jesus to come back. Do you love Christ? Do you want to be more like Christ? Then Christ is in you. And that brings the truth. If you are in Christ, then Christ is at work in every part of your life to make you more fully his own. Lewis gives this illustration in Mere Christianity. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You, you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought that you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Friends, Peter encourages us in this passage to come to Christ with all we are for all of life. May the Lord our God dwell in us and with us for our good and for his eternal glory to that end. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, I am a weak and a wounded sinner. And we are weak and wounded sinners. And we do thy free bounty glorify. Do grow in us true belief and true repentance. So that in coming to Christ, in tasting of his 10,000 charms, that we would be changed. Do not, O oh Lord, leave us as we are, but change us. Set us in right arrangement to Christ. Lay the burden of our sins wholly on Christ and direct us by Christ so that we would serve Christ. Oh God, plant us as a body in Christ and so manifest yourself in our body by your spirit that we would be a glowing and a shining light of the gospel to those who come so that no one comes to grace and does not know the good news of Christ, slain for sinners, raised for their justification. So Father, work out the implications of this passage in each of our lives for our good and for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.